Experiencing 100 Acts of Love with Kim Hamer, the author of 100 Acts of Love, A Girlfriend's Guide to Loving Your Friend Through Cancer or Loss. Here on episode number 277 of the Beyond Adversity podcast with Dr. Brad Miller. So he goes into remission, which is absolutely fantastic. But I think the thing that I always expected is once you get that cancer free, you like throw parties and life is a brighter and better place. And honestly, we were in shock. We were still in shock. I remember us lying in bed and looking at each other and just going, what just happened? And then we had to put our marriage back together. Welcome to the Beyond Adversity podcast with Dr. Brad Miller, the show dedicated to helping you crush adversity and succeed in life. Brad believes you deserve a life that is fulfilling and impactful. And this show is designed to help you navigate beyond adversity and achieve your life of peace, prosperity, and purpose. Now, here's Dr. Brad. Hello again, good people. Welcome to Beyond Adversity with Dr. Brad Miller. It's an honor to have you with me coming to you from the Loft Home Studio just outside of Indianapolis, Indiana. I'm here to speak a good word into your life to help you to overcome, navigate through adverse life events and achieve your life of peace and prosperity and purpose. You can always head over to drbradmiller.com for information about our past episodes and our courses and coaching. Cancer is a terrible disease. I'm dealing with cancer myself right now and writing about my experiences and dealing with them. But cancer not only impacts the person with cancer, it impacts the people around them. In our conversation today, we're talking with Kim Hamer, the author of One Thousand Acts of Love, A Girlfriend's Guide to Loving Your Friend Through Cancer and Loss. On April 16th, 2009, Kim watched her 44-year-old husband, Art, take his last breath. And during his illness and after his death from cancer, she was amazed by the helpful ways that her co-workers and bosses and friends and family supported her and her family. And she started to call these kind actions acts of love. Here in episode number 277 of Beyond Adversity, Kim Hamer discusses her experiences in dealing with cancer and loss and emphasizes the need for support, both spiritually and physically, during difficult times, not only among the family, but among co-workers, and the importance of offering specific acts of kindness and support for those struggling. Kim also touches on that balance between empathy and productivity in the workplace and the necessity of finding a support system while navigating this hardship. Her The podcast episode delves into Kim's personal struggles and her highs and lows and highlights the importance of being open to all your emotions. Some of the key points of this episode include the importance of spiritual connections, physical activity, and dealing with something greater than oneself in hardships and struggles. Support in the, works, in the workplace for those dealing with cancer or loss, including offering specific help using helping superpowers. 
and balancing empathy and productivity in the workplace. This is a great uh, listen here today, and I invite you to do so, particularly if cancer has struck your life, either with yourself or with a loved one or even a co-worker. Our guest today on Beyond Adversity, Kim Hamer, the author of 1,000 Acts of Love, A Girlfriend's Guide to Loving Your Friend Through Cancer or Loss. Let's get into that conversation right now. Special guest today is Kim Hamer. She's the author of 100 Acts of Love. She has an incredible story about how she and her husband faced an incredibly difficult time and how that then translated not only into her own family, but into the workplace. And Kim, welcome to our conversation here, here today. Well, Brad, thank you so much for having me. It's really good to be here. I'm really excited for this conversation. I think it'll be awesome. And uh, I mentioned that the name of your book is 100 Acts of Love, from your website, 100actsoflove.com. And we'll get into the details of that in a minute, but because that's kind of response to the situation you found yourself in. And I'm going to just set it up just with the framework that you and your husband were moving along relatively well in life. <laughs> and then, circ- then circumstances changed. So can you go from there and help us understand the story we're about to tell? Sure. I think you, you really nailed it on the head. We were this young couple raising three kids in California, in L.A. And actually, it's funny. I look back now and I didn't realize how L.A. we were. We were like he would get up in the morning and go work out. And then I'd get up and get my workout clothes on and get the kids up. And then he'd come home and I'd go work out and he'd get ready for work and get the kids ready for school. And then he'd, I'd come home and he'd, get, he'd go to work and then I'd get the kids ready for school and we'd do our thing. We ate organic food. We made sure we took care of our bodies. We went to services. We went to church. And so we were living this this life. And then within three weeks, my husband showed some signs. <laughs> I always laugh at this. We were treating his cancer because we didn't know it was cancer at the time okay. with Delsum cough syrup and ibuprofen because he was running these fevers, these very little light fevers, 100.5. And he was coughing a lot. And so that's how we were treating it. So this, just then, you're at home, you'd, he had a bug or some sort of you thought just is how we're doing. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And and we also were, ah, we don't really need to go to the doctor. We're fairly healthy people or we mm-hmm. don't want to burden. It's, the other thought was we don't want to burden the system. So we fast forward and a couple of weeks and he is, he goes for a run. He comes back very quickly. He says, I can't breathe. He then we're in a, we're at a, we're at a, in a, he calls our primary care doctor and she says, Hey, why don't you go see this viral infectious disease doctor? Cause it sounds like something's up. Mm-hmm. And so we go in there and he takes an x-ray and of my husband's chest and he does an exam and he comes back in the exam room. And it was like something out of a movie. He laced his fingers together. He put them on the exam table and he looked my husband in the eye and said, I think you have cancer. And then he showed us the x-ray and there were these nodules, these white spots all over his lungs. And that's why he had been coughing. And it turned out that he had lymphoma. And one of the early signs of lymphoma is that kind of running these very mild fevers consistently. Before before we go on, that there, that must have been a, that moment takes your breath away in and of itself, does it not? Yeah, it does. It's funny. I've told the story so often that I've removed myself from the emotion, but I just remember thinking like, what? 
Like just what? And I started to cry and Art started to cry. And then the doctor said, I'm going to give you a few moments. I've got to make some phone calls because we need to get you started immediately. So this wasn't, this was on a Friday okay. and the doctor thought it was so bad that there's no kind of waiting to get tests. You need to get going immediately. No time to process um, anything, jump into it, right? Yep. And we made three calls. We made a call to his parents and told them we made a call to my parents and then we called his boss. So those are the three calls we made on that okay. Friday. We went immediately over to see a urologist because they thought it was testicular cancer because he had a tumor there. It turns out it wasn't. It was something called large B-cell lymphoma with a, a testicular large B-cell lymphoma, fairly rare lymphoma. And the, I'm really glad we made the call to his boss because his boss then called some people and we got in to see a doctor first thing on Monday morning. So the urologist was like, okay, we're going to wait over the weekend, which the urologist didn't seem to understand how serious it was. So we waited over the weekend and then we, like I said, Art's boss got us an appointment with a doctor who happened to specialize in this kind of cancer and he sent up the alarm bells. He said, you need to be on oxygen. He wasn't our doctor, so he couldn't prescribe these things for us. So he said, you need to be on oxygen right now. You need to get, you need chemo by the end of this week. I'm not kidding. This thing is going to kill you. And that was even more scary because you think that you're in good hands and then this other doctors know you need to move fast. So we, my husband was, he went into the hospital on Tuesday night because he was struggling. He was really struggling breathing and he was really scared. I think that there's that, we all know what it's like not to be able to breathe. And when you can't be, when you're not able to breathe consistently for over a period of time, it sets up the start of panic. So we brought him into the hospital. He ended up having surgery on Wednesday and they started, they couldn't even wait for the surgery site to heal. Usually they like to wait and they started chemo. I'm sorry, he had chemo. He had surgery on a Friday and they started chemo on a Sunday. So basically all this was came down in just a period of maybe 10 days or so, two weeks. Yeah. The time about, had, I was, yep. Yeah. 10 days. 10 days. Wow. Yep. Yeah. One boom right after another. Just, just literally in his case, might have felt like a kick to the chest. In your case, <laughs> kick to the gut, yeah. whatever yeah. metaphor you want to use. But you yeah. were knocked aback by this situation. Absolutely. So unfortunately, it progressed. Or you, you had a remission. Yeah, yeah you had a yes. remission. But, yep, yep. So it was very clear in the beginning that we never said this to each other, but we knew he knew that his job was to beat this thing. And it was at stage mm -hmm. four, which is the worst stage. Sure. So his job was to beat it. And my job was to hold down the fort. And so that's what we did. It you became know, your marriage and family project. It became our marriage and family project. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So he goes into remission, which is absolutely fantastic. But I think the thing that I always expected is once you get that cancer free, you like throw parties and life is a brighter and better place. And honestly, we were in shock. We were still in shock. I remember us lying in bed and looking at each other and just going, what just happened? And then we had to put our marriage back together. Thing like that really brings out the best in your marriage and it brings out the worst in yes, your marriage. Yes. I was feeling really resentful that he, this was the man of the house. He was the breadwinner. He was, we live stereotypical lives. And I was really resentful that he got sick and he felt a lot of shame for getting sick. So we mm -hmm. had to work through that as well and decide that we wanted to stay together, which we did. So I'm really 
glad for that. We decided we did each other and we decided that we could, we did work through the resentment and the shame and the guilt and everything that comes along with that. And you had three um, we, relatively young children at the same time. Is that right? Did. Yeah. We yeah. did. Yes. Yes. When he was first diagnosed, they were four, seven and four, seven and nine. So then the cancer, we we're going about our lives. We were building. We do start to really appreciate each other a bit more and each other's strengths and honor, honor our weaknesses. And then the cancer comes back and it's, he is looking back at photos. You can see that he's lost a lot of weight. So there was a little bit of denial on both our parts, but he, cancer comes back. It gets re-diagnosed in January, again, at stage four, and then he dies on uh, four months later. Wow. What a, first of all, I'm just sorry. I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you. Thank I know you. it's I know it's been a, several years now, but that just stays with you. And you continue to share the story in your book and in your teaching and on podcast. And so you've chosen to be a courageous person to share that story and it involves your children and whatever and other aspects of your life now. And we're gonna talk a minute about your professional life. But that, that I want to talk to you I want to ask you about Something I think was pretty cool that you and your husband, whose name was Art, did. You took pictures, even doing some pretty tough pictures, really. And I saw some of them on your website. Tell me what precipitated this this urge to record through photography what was happening at that time. I think that's an interesting perspective. It's so I'm really glad you asked that, Brad, because I hadn't really thought about it. When he was first diagnosed with cancer, I kept a blog. I just wrote. I'm, I just felt the need. It was part of my process of processing what was happening in our lives. So I wrote. And a friend of mine said, you need pictures. And it never dawned on me that I needed pictures. But then I started to get into photography. And I did, it wasn't like I got a camera. I just loved I loved photography books. So one mm-hmm. for my birthday, Art bought me an Annie Leibovitz, okay, one yeah. of her books. And the photos in there are beautiful, but she documents Susan Sodenheim's death through the cancer, and she documents her father's death in that book. And I thought it was so moving. And then for Christmas, the year that he was diagnosed the second time, he got me a camera. And so I just started taking pictures. And I remember just thinking, and there was that, and there was also a friend of mine, her husband died in 9-11, and she sent out mm. a Christmas card that year with a ton little photos of yeah. 25 little photos of them. And she said, take lots of pictures. Yeah. And so there was those two things that were in my mind that Annie Leibovitz had done this and that this person who had lost her husband in 9-11 was giving me a thing to do that was that would in, impact my life. And so I just started taking pictures and he was okay with it. I asked and he said, take away. Hmm. And I'm so grateful I have those photographs because- What a gift. What a special gift, yes. Yeah. And I think it's, we forget, this has been my story. My, I'm coming up on 14 years since his death. And so I often, you know, like, like what you just did, you stopped me from telling the story for a moment because it was like, Kim, this is a big story. And I often forget that was a huge moment in my life. And when I have those pictures, I can remember. And when the kids see those pictures, they can remember so that it, it almost verifies, it validates. This was a big deal. This happened. This hurt. This was painful. And you're mm-hmm. resilient and you were able to move forward. I'm a big believer that we have to be try to sensitive to these special and sometimes final or final gifts 
we often remember the last words. We There's books and books written about the last words people say or yeah. deathbed confessions and things like that. Why? Because people remember some of those stories told, photographs taken, videos, or moments or even like a song on the radio. I was, or yes. I was talking to a person not too long ago who was lived near where nine eleven happened in New Jersey, and could see the smoke from the fires of the twin towers. And for her, smoke triggers Eight. memories with her. Right. It's a trigger, and that can be good and bad, or poignant, or sad, or all kinds of things. And yeah. I'm sure, and I'm sure you also see it in my just. I'm just making an assumption here. You tell me when you see pictures of your children in that era who are now young adults, I presume, it just puts it in perspective, a little different yeah, uh, yeah. perspective and, as well. And I also, I, I've used those photographs with them to remind them of what resilience looks like mm-hmm. because we don't, resilience isn't the popping back up that it is. It is, it is just putting one foot in front of the other. One thing that I remember very clearly, and I just said this to someone yesterday is your backup is up against the wall and turns out the walls are really good support. So no, that's resilience. It's resilience is standing using that wall. The resilience can help you move against the resistance and keep moving forward because if you just stay Otherwise, you're just stuck. And right. that's part of what I think a lot of happens to a lot of folks. I want to get into some of your, how you apply this story to real life situations here in a second. But just the point is, a lot of people st- are stuck in the moment or stuck in their grief or, or dissolved into not able to function anymore out of their grief or out of their situations, their cancer, whatever it would be. And you have to make some really conscious decisions, some actions to move forward. And you noticed, you picked up on some of the things people said, some of the things people didn't say that were helpful and some of them not so helpful in this process. And that tells me that you had, even in the midst of your pain, some things just felt weird, some felt bad, and some felt good. <laughs> Am I anywhere near correct here with you? No, Kevin? you're absolutely right. Yeah. I couldn't and, even I couldn't even describe it sometimes why they felt good or why they felt bad, but I just knew that they were well, wrong or right. Yeah. But let's just go there with some of the statements or some of the types of things that were said that sure. fell in those categories. Good, bad and weird, if you will. Some things <laughs> So one thing I tell everybody all the time is don't say, if you need anything, let me know. And I know that probably 99.9% of your listeners have said it. I used to say it all the time because it feels like it's really helpful, but there are really four specific reasons it's not helpful. The first one is when someone is sharing their pain with you, they really need you to share. And I'm not saying you need to be, feel their pain, but what they want, they need witnesses. We all need witnesses. We need people to see us in the moment, in those bad moments and in the good moments. And when you jump into, if you need anything, let me know, you're not witnessing them. So taking that moment to just be shocked by the information, it's okay to burst out crying. It's not okay to get them to comfort you, but it's okay to burst out crying. It's okay to say, I don't know what to say. That the gravity of the situation, that means that the gravity of the situation strikes you so hard that you are speechless. That's a beautiful thing. So I think that phrase does not do that. The second reason it's not helpful is what is anything? What is anything? (laughs) Anything is literally nothing in a way. 
Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I had a toddler when my son, my, my, an older toddler, four-year-old when my husband was diagnosed. Did that mean that you were going to take your brand new, just clean, just detailed cart up to preschool to pick up my vomiting toddler? Or did you mean that you'd be happy to drop off a bottle of wine? Anything is too big. The third reason it's not helpful is because now you're putting the pressure on the person who is dealing with this terrible thing to figure out what you mean by anything. And that's just, it's just too, I can't, I, I don't have the, I have barely enough energy to function in my life as it's currently turned yeah. upside down yeah. to figure out, to break apart my day. And then the last reason it's not helpful is because I don't know about you, but most of us aren't very good at asking for help. And so now you have this vulnerable person who might've come up with one thing that they think that maybe might be helpful to you. It might be helpful that they need. And now you're asking them to ask you to do it, risking that you might go, oh gosh, they're not going to do it. Nobody wants to be vulnerable like that. Yeah. So that's often why people use that phrase and nobody, and they don't, and the person doesn't call you to ask. Um, I, I, I was just going to say, just, I want to mm -hmm. continue that conversation, but just at the, I've conducted, I'm a retired pastor. I've con conducted in the neighborhood of 300 funerals in my last 40 something years. And the, what you described the scenario is so ridiculously common. It's yeah. I, I've been in there standing next to the casket when people say things, whatever can I do? And the things I found better and better is when somebody just shook a hand or gave a look and just said something like, I'm here for you, or what a specific thing that they could do for them. So let's exactly. go, let's go there for a minute because I know your book is one or acts of love, which tells me mm -hmm. it's slightly different than 100 words of love. So I don't know if I'm <laughs> anywhere close to what you're about or not, but go there with it. What are some of the things you found a good thing or helpful? I do want to let people know you, you nailed on the head. The best thing you can do is to honor them in that moment and then be specific about the kind of help you're willing to offer and offer more than once. Because again, this person is not dealing with a full deck of cards and they're mm. going to forget or they're going to think you really don't mean it. So we all have helping superpowers, things we like to do, things we're good at. Those are the way, those are the best possible ways to help somebody. Some other things that people did. One of the most helpful things that when someone did for us was they put a cooler by the front door. And this was the second time my husband got cancer. Okay. And it was so helpful because it relieved me from the need to answer the door. And sometimes I was in the mood and Art was in the mood for company. And sometimes we weren't. And oftentimes people show up with a meal and they want to, they want to connect and they say, how are you? And then I would feel the pressure because they just bought me a meal. I would feel the pressure that I need to respond. I right. feel like they just, it's the law of reciprocity. You just gave sure. me something I need to sure. respond in kind. And I don't want to respond. I'm tired. I've had a really long day. We just got bad news from the doctor, whatever it is. And so that cooler by the front door allowed me and art the option of responding. And after sure. he died, it allowed me the option of responding. So if I knew a meal was being dropped off, I didn't necessarily have to answer the door. And that was a really great thing. Another great one is I often tell people just do the little things. Bringing a meal every Monday is great. And I will never downplay that. But a car needs a registration. Kids need to be picked up from school or have a night out. Work, a worker needs to, needs a hot cup of coffee. So there's, it's the little things. The book is full of these little ideas, simple ways that you can yeah. show up. I wanted it. I wanted to make it easy for people. I wanted people to know that it's not the big overwhelming things that really make a difference. It's the small little things that you do that you, and you show up yeah. that, that really help. 
And really what you're sharing in your book is a, is an essentially a list of tips or activities that people can do and that can generate ideas of the specifics exactly. that, that they can do. And I think what I'm hearing you say here, and I'd like you to go deeper in this a little bit, is that part of what I think has to happen for people to navigate tragedy or navigate these things is uh, you either have to be an action taker yourself or you have to engage in some form or another that which needs to be done, the activity. And so I'd like you to go a little bit more into that because you then chose to do some activities yourself. I'm thinking of writing some of the things that you did to help process this yourself. What do you think are some of the activities that people can do to be helpful to navigate something, the tragedy such as you experienced? I think writing for me was a very important one. I have, I didn't really consider myself a writer until that kind of book came through me. So writing was very important. I think if you're, if you're the person who is dealing with this loss or this cancer, finding your people to talk to is really important. Not everybody is going to be your person and it's just the way it is. And so finding those people who are going to be able to hold a space for you and you can have different people. You can have the people that you call up hysterically crying, feeling lost with, and then that person holds you and holds you physically or figuratively mm -hmm. and lets you process. You can have your prayer group, right? Your prayer group that you just need, you just maybe need some extra prayers right now and today. So you have those people in your life. You can have the logical people in your life. Like these are my options for this type of cancer treatment. What do you think? Have you, can you pull up some research for me? So you can have all different sorts of people in your life. I think the most important thing though, is to have people in your life. Oftentimes what I see is someone will have a cancer diagnosis or deal with loss and they have been hurt. And so they don't, they figure everyone else is going to be like this. So they pull back. And if they've they had one of those bad experiences and they say, forget about it, I'm out of here. Ex exactly. Exactly. So. Or seven people have said to them, if you need anything, let me know. And they're realizing that's not helpful right. and no one's taking action. They get yeah. angry and they get hurt and they pull back. This exacerbates the pain. So let's, this, yeah. the, I heard you say several things there. You talked about writing, you talked about people, you talked about prayer groups, you talked about logical people and medical people and people to be comforted and hold your hand. Let's go there. You mentioned a prayer. I, and I just want to go there to the area of the role that connecting to a higher power, spiritual plane. What role did this play in helping you and Art navigate this and even how you've navigated this situation since he's passed away? Tell me the role that a spiritual life plays in everything that you're about here. So in the beginning, not much. We were going to church and we stopped going because Art couldn't go. And so I didn't want to take the kids by myself. We had someone who was coming in and talking to him, spiritual advisor, who would come and meet with him once a week during the first round of his the first time he had cancer. But after that, we didn't have it the second time. So there wasn't a lot of spiritual spirituality in our lives at that point. We had people praying for us, which was helpful. Where it really came in was when I was brought to my knees after he died. And, and it wasn't just the first year I was not brought to my knees until the third year after he died. Okay. And when I realized I could not continue going on the way I was going on, I couldn't raise my children. I was still, I was dealing with depression. I was, I was messing around with alcohol. I was just, I knew there was this little, and it was God for lack of a better word that just said, you're in trouble and you need to get help. And so it wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't even connected enough to hear 
God's love. I was only connected enough to hear God tell me that I need to get help. And so that's where my spiritual life really took off was in that complete surrender. I couldn't do my life anymore the way it was going. And I knew that I was going to, I felt I was afraid that I was going to harm myself or harm my children Mm. and really messed up even worse. And yeah, that little voice was just like, this is, you need help. And that's exact. And I was like, you're absolutely right. And that's when I started to get help. And whew, that's when God stepped in. I was open. You hear these stories all the time, right? Where people just brought to their knees. And, it, and, he, and even then it took me a while to even get on my knees. I would pray okay. to God standing up, right? Because I was just too, I was too willful. And then things really started to move when I got to my knees. It seemed to me, you strike me as a woman who for, in many ways, would like to think that I can figure this out. I can get through this. But you found that you needed people and you needed this spiritual plane in order to ultimately to to deal with this. And I don't know if that's anywhere near correct or not, but that's my take on it right now. I just believe that's basically true for everybody. You need people. Yeah, you yeah. need to have, you kind of have to have the physical aspect of it, if you will. You need to get active. You need to get engaged. You can't stay yes. locked in the house under the covers the whole time. You've yes. got to get out and get engaged and you need to make a connection to some, something greater than self and, and including other people and, and then share those gifts with one, one another. And it sounds like you did a pretty good job with that. And it's, it's an ongoing process. And you're involved with it now. And I see, I just want to share with you that as I looked at your website and talking to you a couple of times now, you have a kind of a beautiful smile and countenance about you that resonates an inner joy. And that's a good thing. And yet I know that there's, mm. whenever people have great pain, there's tears and there's yeah. mad, there's anger, there's all the emotions that come into play. And I just want to ask Absolutely. about Absolutely. Where have you found and how this whole process there, how have you found and experienced joy or laughter or even experiences with your husband, even that, that put a smile on your face? Tell me where you get that from, if at all. I just want to talk to you about joy and laughter and that part of things. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I don't know. I just, I think that there is something that I have always liked and laughed at things. I think, I think it's, that's a really good question, Brad. I think what I find is it is, it's just this optimism. It's things are bad and they could always be worse. Okay. I know that sounds, when Art was first diagnosed in January, the second time was diagnosed the second time, Lebanon was bombing Israel. Israel was bombing Lebanon. I don't remember which one. And And I remember thinking, we're not there. (laughs) I just remember thinking we could be relocating the whole family to a different part of Israel, to a different hospital, because the hospital that we were going to is being bombed. And I know that people think, well, that's a survival mechanism, but it is. And it worked. And Art and I laughed about it. We were like, could be worse. We could be being bombed. Sucks sucks to be you type of thing, right? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So I think it is, it is about finding the joy and finding the sweetness. And I, the, what I've learned through this process and through my my spiritual process is that I heard this quote. Actually, I'm going to do this quote. It's so good. 
this, it was by an actor, I've forgotten his name, African-American young black actor new to the scene. And he said he really wanted a steady life. He's like, I'm so tired of these highs and these lows. Mm -hmm. And his therapist said, you get a heartbeat and it goes up and down. But if you go the same, you're flatlined. Oh, and yeah. I just, yeah. I've not heard that, bro. Oh, That's right? awesome. I'll have to look that up. It yeah. And so what I remember is that those lows are really low and they're hard, but the highs are really high and they're great. Mm. And so the minute I try to tamp myself down, like I was with the alcohol and with everything else I was trying to use, I was trying to tamp it down because I didn't want to feel the, I didn't want to feel the lows. But I also realized I was afraid of feeling the highs. I was afraid of those incredible moments. And so once I worked through that, when I'm low even in the lowest moment, I, I shared with you before we started recording, you said, how are you? And I was like, what a tough day yesterday. <laughs> yeah, a lot of conversations. You know? yeah. and, and, and in those tears, even in the moment of crying, I was so grateful I was crying. Mm -hmm. At one point, I'm on my knees. I'm laughing and crying at the same time because I'm laughing at the old Kim who would have never been on her knees in a, in the, in a, doesn't matter what you would have told her. She would never have gotten on her knees. And I'm laughing because that Kim is no longer here. And I'm crying because I'm in, in such pain and I need, I want direction. I want God to just inspire me one way or the other. And then I'm crying because I'm also so grateful. So I had all these I was sad, grateful, and joyful all in one moment. And mm. I think when you could open yourself up to that, there's that piece of it. And also, it's just really fun. I have to say, I was at Camp Widow two weeks ago in Tampa. There's a, such a thing as Camp Widow. Love it. And we made a lot of jokes about dead people. Oh. <laughs> and when you're in that group, you get to make those kind of jokes. And it's funny. And it's a way to connect with each other. And it's joyful. And if you don't have a dead person in your life, you may you probably look at us like we're crazy. Same thing with cancer. We made a lot of jokes. Art and I used to crack up about cancer. We talked about going to it when he was bald. We talked about going to a restaurant and complaining that they found hair in his food. <laughs> there you go. That's <laughs> you a great story. That's it's a like, great story. You know what? There's hair in his food. So it's the ability to understand that laughter isn't an escape. And it's just, no matter how bad the moment is, there is a moment where you can just take a moment and breathe and just give a little giggle. And it relieves, it relieves the, some of the pain. It relieves some of the hardness and the harshness of it. It's a real human emotion, just like crying is. And the idea is you're feeling something then. And I'm sure there's moments when you think of art and think of your family moments, good and bad, that yeah. just, brings, it just brings a smile to your face. Absolutely. That's awesome. The time comes, though, in this life, Kim, when you kind of, you mentioned it's been 14 years since you lost him. And one of the things that people, some people get stuck, and what I'm all about here in this podcast is helping people get unstuck and get on back to life, get on back to their living. And that was the case for you. You had to get back to your life and get back to your world and your business world. And you had to face a few challenges there about that because not everybody is equipped to deal with this in the workplace. And so let's take our last few moments and deal with that kind of your, the business side of things. Because I know that's an important part of your business that you are run. So you are an HR person. Tell me about this scenario that you found in the workplace that is a unique thing that I had, that became a problem that you are now a problem you're helping to address. 
Yeah. Most people don't know what to say or what to do. And then I go into the workplace and I realize it's the same thing. Most people don't know what to say or what to do. And it was, it was very painful to see because what I saw was a group of people who wanted to help this employee dealing with cancer or an employee dealing with loss and not sure what to do, looking for direction. And then I saw this on the other side, this person who wants the support, who needs the support, right? We spend a third of our lives at work, working with individuals who we see more than our partners. And so they want the support from these people and they don't know how to get it. And so that, that is where I went with the business. I am now helping managers and HR teams understand what to say and how to work with an employee dealing with cancer loss, or even if there's an employee death. I think it's something that in the end, I want to say this, for those people who are really struggling, it's about putting one pinky toe in front of the other. I did mm. not get here because I took these leaps and bounds. Mm. Those early days were really hard. And there were days I just thought, I just don't want to. And I think it was, I learned to lower ex my expectations for myself. And I know that's exactly the opposite of what, raise your expectations of what you can do. But what I found early on is something that my mentor always says to me, expectations are resentment under construction. Mm, wow. I so expectations, yeah, are resentment under construction. So when I had expectations about myself, about how I should behave, what I should be able to do after my husband died, they only, they, most of the time they turned into resentment that mm. I couldn't do them, that I wasn't yeah. able. So it was a judgment. So making sure that I had the really low expectations, there were mornings I was like, okay, feet on the floor. What next? I should probably go use the bathroom. Great. Okay. Done that. Now what? Yeah. Wash your hands. Great. So it was one step at a time. Um, you said kind of picky toes at a time, just tiny steps. Exactly. Yeah. And it was also remembering to say, I can't. It's not, I don't want to, I can't. And letting that be the okay answer. Because there was always the thing is I really want to, or I should be able to, or I will when I really, I can't, I just can't right now. And so just making sure that I was, I'll give myself permission to say, I can't right now as, as often as I possibly could. So I just wanted to put that out there because I think sure. it's something that it, there's, well, sound, there's no like magic. That's a part of the process that you teach the HR folks and that yes. type of thing and corporate types. And it gives them some tools to work with because I know. HR folks are dealing with all the protocols of the workplace and all the management of personnel and right. other things. But a lot of times it's the human emotion that we have a hard time dealing with. And I know they are cert certain HR people are given certain protocols on how to emotionally handle hiring and firing and that kind of stuff, but not always this kind of situation. And I think it's, I assume it's a real need. I know my wife works at a law, a large law firm that's international in scope. And this is a relatively common thing. It people, is. people do get sick and they do die in a law firm yeah. with a thousand people in it. It happens and and you have to to deal with it. Even in my small offices that I dealt with, we're just a four or five people in the offices I dealt with. Yep. Common thing, common thing. And so I, how you do with it makes a difference. And I just want to thank you for giving us some handles to work on here for this workplace. Anything you want to say specifically about how this might be helpful if there's an HR person listening to us today who's saying, okay, this is exactly what I need. I think I want people to know that there is a balance between empathy and productivity. 
I think what happens in the workforce is something like this happens. We know it's an emotional, hard thing, and we back off because we are so afraid of asking people to step in, to show up in one way or another. And that is one of the biggest mistakes we make. There is there is a way to be empathetic and also to still drive productivity on a team. And you don't have to be mean, right? I think there's this idea of managers don't want to be mean. So you don't have to be mean to do it. So I th- and it's not as difficult as people think. So I think that's, I'm in this gray area that people don't realize exists. And that is that people want to help, they want to show up, and they also want to get work done. And there is a way that you can work with employees dealing with cancer, loss, depression, or even grief on a team that will help the team do both of those things. And when you do that, when you do that, you end up driving employee connect, employee engagement higher. You end up with more connected employees, you end, which means you end up with more productivity. So there's a, there, there's a reason to do this, a business yes. pace to do it as well. Yeah. Let's close with this, Cam. Let's thought here. I always like to close with the sense of the results of what's, of what's happened here. The name of your book is 100 Acts of Love. I'd like for you to, we want people to go buy the book, of course, and I want you to tell us a minute how to get mm-hmm. it and everything, but give us one or two, give us one freebie. And I'd like you to share that with me, with us in the context of a story of maybe someone who's been helped by the book or by your own personal counsel or, or something like that. Give us a story. So it's very interesting you asked for this. I just got an email yesterday from a woman who's been on my email list since I was doing a different business. And she shared that her husband died two years ago in in the middle of COVID. And one of the things she shared, she said that what, what my book gave her was the opportunity to know exactly what she needed to ask for help. So she literally made copies of the book and sent it to people. And this is what I need. So she would say, this tip is this tip. You do this. And this tip, when people would say, if you need anything, let me know, especially those, the friends that were close to her. So she used it that way. She found it really helpful. I do want to tell a really quick story about my neighbor, Nate. My neighbor, Nate, wandered up to my house one day after Art died, knocked on the door and said, when was the last time the oil was changed in your car? And I was like, I have no, I was like, there's oil in the car? (laughs) So he said, I'll tell you what, I'm home all day tomorrow. Leave the keys in the mailbox. Text me. I'll come get it and I'll change it for you. And I said, okay. And y'all, I did not want Nate to help me. I felt like this was, I think there was a month four or five. I felt like I was okay. I wasn't. I felt like I should be able to do this by myself. I couldn't. And so I was very hesitant. But in the morning, I was like, you know what? Just have him do it. He offered. So I called him. I put the keys in the mailbox. He came and grabbed the car. He texted me when he put the car back and put the keys back in the mailbox. The next day, I went out to the car. And it looked very different. And I was like, huh. And I got in and I turned the car on and I start to cry because Nate just didn't have the oil changed in the car. He had it washed inside and out and Mm. he had filled it with gas. Nate didn't do this again. He did it one time. Wow. And in that one gesture, he relieved all this pressure off of me. Remembered it, first of all, in the early sure. stages of grief, remembering anything is impossible. So remembering yes. to put gas in the car was impossible. My car was a mess. I had three young children. And I wouldn't, the idea of just changing the oil in the car was just something so far from my brain. And so what this demo, what this illustrates is it's simple gestures that are so powerful and so easy to do. 
And what he did really mattered so much so that I went down to his house a year later. Now I said, thank you to him, of course, but I went down one day when I was thinking about it and I said, I just want to thank you so much for, for doing this for me. And he said, I want to thank you for allowing me to help. Helping you helped me. Sure. And that's one great way of looking at it. And that is indeed an act of love, isn't it? An act of love that you experienced in your book is a way to help share those with other folks. Our folks are out there listening and they, in many cases, they're hurting and they need some practical tips. Kim, Kim Hamer, tell people how they can find out more about you, what you're all about, your book and your consulting and what you're all about. Sure. So first of all, you can go to 100xoflove.com backslash what not to say, and you can download four other phrases never to say to anybody dealing with cancer or loss and what to say instead, because I don't want to leave you hanging. So that's 100xoflove.com, what not to say, no spaces, no capitalized. I am on Instagram at 100xoflove, and I'm also on LinkedIn all over the place. I post Tuesday tips. I do a Thursday live. If you have any questions about what you should do for an employee, just go ahead and ask me and I will answer them on the live. And I'm just, I'm launching a YouTube channel next month. Awesome. And that's 100 acts of love. And I just would point out that's the numeral 100. 100. The numeral, uh, yes. Thank 100, you. 100 acts of love.com. We'll put links to all of that at our website, drbradmiller.com. Our guest today, the author of 100 acts of love. Kim Hamer, thank you for being our guest today. A very special and poignant episode of Beyond Adversity with Kim Hamer. Here on episode number 277, she was very uh, vulnerable, sharing her experiences and her insights and observations, coping with and overcoming the adversity of losing her husband to cancer and all the uh, aspects that went along with that in the family, with raising her, her children and in the, in the workplace. And she emphasized, among many things, the, the importance of connection. She spoke the value of having people in your life who can hold a space for you when you're processing emotions, as, those, as well as those who can offer a very uh, practical and logical uh, advice. And she also talks about the importance of having a spiritual connection and connecting to something greater than, than herself. She talked about the uh, needs and the specific support that others can give, including individuals struggling with the fear of being burdensome. So how they can uh, sometimes downplay the assistance they need. People sometimes downplay the assistance they need or refuse it altogether. And Kim stressed that even small, simple acts of kindness and persistent offers of help goes a long way in supporting people in need. She also touches on the balance between empathy and productivity in the workplace and how it means a balanced work environment can also increase employee engagement, morale, and productivity. Kim's story of finding writing and photography as an outlet for her emotions helps process her was an encouraging part of our story of the story that she shared. And she reminds us that adversity like this can offer new opportunities and inspire personal growth. This interview number, uh, this uh, podcast episode on Beyond Adversity, number 277 with Kim Hamer. It's a powerful, heartfelt episode with some great insights and life lessons for anyone who's facing cancer or loved ones or coworkers. 
and it can speak into your life. Everyone's experiences are unique, but finding support, balance, and being open to new opportunities can help you find your way through this adversity. I just want to thank Kim for being so vulnerable and sharing her story with you, our Beyond Adversity audience. The Beyond Adversity podcast exists for you, my friend. We love you and you, we care for you. My name is Dr. Brad Miller, retired pastor. I have a doctoral degree in transformational leadership, and I can help you, along with my guests, can help you to navigate the five D's of adversity, depression, divorce, disease, debt, and death, and to emerge, to navigate that, to come to your place of peace and prosperity and purpose. You can always head over to drbradmiller.com for back episodes of this podcast and to learn more about our coaching and courses. We are here for you to help you to grow through what you go through. And we hope that you'll join us next time here on Beyond Adversity. Until then, good people, this is Dr. Brad Miller inviting you to always do all the good that you can. Thank you for listening to the Beyond Adversity podcast with Dr. Brad Miller. You can find a complete archive of all episodes at drbradmiller.com. That's drbradmiller.com. Or subscribe for free through Apple Podcasts and never miss an episode. Each week, we bring you a message to crush adversity and live your life of peace, prosperity, and purpose.